Coaching Inside the Box. A youth soccer coaching podcast. A Brit, a Brazilian, and an American discuss culture and environment and the impact it has on youth development. Can you coach inside the box? Welcome, welcome back to episode 24 of Coaching Inside the Box. It has been a minute. Andy had to uh, uh, recover from his bout with leprosy. Oh, um, I had COVID to the 10th degree. Um, Andy's got a few scars on his face. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can see him here. But I think they give him, they give him a little bit more wisdom, a little bit more grit. Character. Character, right? Yeah, so yeah. Andy's bout with leprosy was a successful one. Andy won, but we are back. We are back with a, another exciting installment of Coaching Inside the Box. And, and it wasn't leprosy. It was shingles. You said leprosy in the text. Yeah, that was just being facetious. Oh, okay. But, you know, that's the first time in my life I've ever been facetious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> to the record, I have been fine with no problems. Thank you. <laughs> Philippe but, just but, been... hey, you know, we, we got to talk about, you know, what's happening just in this studio since we started recording podcasts. Mm -hmm. You know, because remember, you know, I was the first one to, to sacrifice the hard stool. You know, because of, you know, personal old age injuries, you know, and how it made me feel absolutely terrible, you know, sitting here for an hour or more, you know, on that hard wooden stool. So I brought in a chair and a, and a cushion. Well, now you, because of your physical problems, so don't attack me. You're way younger than I am. And, and, you they, say, and they say Brazilians are soft. Well, yeah. we, started this, we started this recording of these podcasts a couple of years ago, right on the tail end of COVID. Um, and I'm near 40 now. And they say when oh, you get old. near 40, I'm glad I'm not that your, old. your body starts to change a little bit. <laughs> but, but you are today now you know, having to have a different chair. You know, uh, and here in a minute, your, I'll be standing. Yeah, because of your physical disabilities. You know, <laughs> it's been a rough couple of days. Yeah, and but you're not where I am because you know I've got the physical disabilities, but also the the mental disability. <laughs> and now you the know. physical dis uh, dis uh, uh, issues on your face as well. Yeah, so it's just uh, it's going downhill fast. You know, basically. <laughs> so what we're saying, listeners, is if you enjoy this pod, gobble up while you can. We may be dead tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not <will> me. <laughs> <laughs> now, Philippe looks more fit than I've ever yeah. seen him. Uh, you know, this Comet season is a few months away, but, like, you're fit right now. You've got to be looking forward to a, a good season. So yeah, sure. I mean, I'm putting in the work because last season I had the visa issues for three months, couldn't play, and obviously, you know, getting a few pounds, was not doing a ton of extra work outside, and shame on me for that. And, you know, I decided to take the summer more seriously than I even took the season, and... I drop about 15 pounds and, you know, I'm training and getting fit and see what's going to happen. So uh, that's good stuff. So, so, you know, let's let's talk about Philippe here specifically, okay. because I think Philippe's a greater risk of dying early than either of us two. You know, because of the story he told us this morning about how he was in New York City and he got into it with an Argentinian. It's <laughs> a good you know, story. Why so don't you tell the story, Philippe, Philippe? Tell the story about you and the Argentinian in your jungle, juggle off in New York City. Because somebody's going to kill you for doing this, you know. So probably an Argentinian. So hopefully we don't have Argentinians in the audience because they're going to get pretty pissed off. Uh, and they're very angry people. So um, anyway, so um, I'm walking at Central Park with my dear wife, Shelby, and we're having a good time and we see this this guy uh juggling the ball you know with a hat trying to get some tips uh from people walk, walking uh, on the park and 
I see there's a guy uh, juggling with him, and I'll be very honest, even the guy that was working for the tips, he wasn't that good, and the guy that joined him was even worse, and I heard that the that guy was... was the Argentinian that joined him, right? Correct, and I, okay. heard, I, overheard, I overheard him telling the Americans, saying, oh, I'm from Argentina, like, trying to brag about, you know, being, being from a soccer uh, country. So... I, I, I told my wife, Shelby, I'm sorry, but I got to jump into this. So I, I gave her my stuff and I jumped in and I said, hey, he's from Argentina and I'm from Brazil. Let's go for a challenge. So the guy passed me the ball and I started like doing some stuff that they couldn't do. And while I'm doing it, uh, the American guy that was working for the tip started to cheer on me. And um, I just started saying, hey, that's why we have five World Cups and they have two. You know, Mara, but Pe Pele is better than Maradona and blah, blah, blah. And I started saying all these things. And the Argentinians started getting so pissed off. And he left. And <laughs> while get he his was buddies and come back with us. And while, while he was leaving, while he was leaving, even his family was laughing. And he was so mad. And while he was leaving, I tried to break that. I said, hey, but Messi is better than Neymar. And then... He, he just kept upset. walking away, and I turned to to the American guy. Said, "Not really anymore." And <laughs> you know, and then uh, hold on a second. You've just put like a hundred bullets into his soul, and then you offer this pathetic <laughs> olive branch. Messi's better than Neymar, really? Uh, but that's and you expect that. But that's break, all they you know, got, Andy. That's all he, they got. Uh, that's all they can say. Yeah, but you've just killed the guy, and you know, and you're, you're trying to offer an olive branch now. You but know, he, I mean, you've embarrassed him. But you've, he's from Argentina, so. Yeah. It's uh, fine. So that's you got, actually, that's a good he's, point. He's substandard. You don't care. I, I got to be <laughs> honest. At all. You know, I'm, I'm just you know having flashbacks now to the 1986 World Cup, and that's a good point. I'm totally on your side. You know, after what Mar <laughs> Maradona did. <laughs> so I'm with you. You know, good job. <laughs> well, uh, uh, this may surprise you, but we did not come to debt together this morning uh, to have an episode to talk about uh, Andy's leprosy or my old age. Shingles. Or <laughs> I, I don't have a bell. I don't walk around saying unclean, unclean. It's not leprosy, okay? Hey, just remembering this story a few days later just makes me feel so good. I, I'm sure I'm going to have a wonderful day. We came on this episode, we came together to for this episode to talk about something of which, uh, you know, Andy Philippe and I, the entire club um, is enormously proud of um, because uh, a group of U13 girls went to work um, many, many years ago and put work in week in, week out, weekend, week out, weekend out, um, all the way through. And it culminated in a summer that was just absolutely fantastic for them, winning uh, State Cup, winning the Supercopa National Championship in Florida in June, winning, winning the Region 2 Midwest Regionals in June, and then finally finishing off in July with winning the USYS National Championship, the first youth national championship for our club. Um, and we're going to get into why we think now was the time um, in and, a moment. Can I, can I interject Yeah, here? go on. Because they didn't just win it. They scored 18 goals and conceded only three. I mean, they just... In four games. In four games. Yeah, just dominated it you yeah. know, from start to finish. You know, it, and, incredible. And, and I, Andy, I think you probably... We're going to get into it. I think you probably watched a few of their games and lead the run-up on streams. I watched the final and the final only. I watched but every was, single one. I was so impressed with... Uh, I mean, we're talking about 12-year-old girls and, and, and their, their confidence, 
the, their creativity. Um, I mean, they played so much bigger than a 12-year-old you'd think could play. And, and I was just really impressed with the girls. Matt Iverson, the coach, has done a fantastic job with every group that he's coached. Um, but watching him succeed at that level um, with that group was definitely something that, that had me grinning ear to ear for a couple of days. Um, Andy, as, let's start here. As, as, let's, let's talk about the team for a bit, and then we can get into kind of the why we think now is, is, is the time that this took place. Um, but talk about the team a little bit. As you watch the team, what are things you, you, you took away during their run from just that group? Well, it, just how different they were. You know, as, as individuals uh, collectively, uh, you know, and, you know, for those that haven't been listening to our podcasts or really studied what we do up until this point, you know, we have, uh, and this is the first team that's gone from, you know, soccer birth you know, to, you know, under 13, you know, and have been totally immersed in our huge 66,000 square foot indoor soccer facility and had the opportunity to constantly develop their ball striking ability in the soccer boxes, playing war ball on our small big fields, because our big fields are small fields where everything's tight and fast, you know, and really dig into the maestro series of moves that we teach you know, and, you know, and day in and day out become composed in tight spaces. This is the youngest, you know, ever group, you know, that the started in, you know, these, um, the, the later versions of our indoor facilities, you know, and they're now reaching teenage years. And they've, this is all they've ever done is under pressure in tight spaces you know, hit the ball first time, second time, use moves under pressure, wriggle out of pressure, you know, use quick combinations, you know, the, the, out of their own penalty area, in the opponent's penalty area, you know, in order to penetrate. They break lines where there doesn't seem to be a possibility to break lines. And so I would guess that in the games that I watched overall, our team probably had, and this sounds ridiculous, but this is the way it was, 85% of the possession. But we didn't play just to keep the ball. So this was 85% of the possession going north to south, going goal to goal, attacking, penetrating. It was vertical play. It was vertical possession. Yeah. You know, it, it was you know, possession that really challenges the individual to the nth degree. You know, and that was the, different in the in difference in the games. And the other coaches in interviews talked about the way our players were so composed on the ball, so deceptive on the ball in tight spaces, didn't panic. You know, if they lost the ball, they lost the ball trying to do something really creative to keep it, pushing that ragged edge of ability again. There, there wasn't one instance where they just kicked the ball. Mm -hmm. You know, they were bringing it down, using moves, you know, doing wall passes, doing overlaps, you know, supporting each other in tight spaces where you would think there wasn't enough time and space to do these really complicated things. But that's what the great ones do. And I mean, one thing that I mean, there were a few things that I noticed from the final. They played a, um, a, a team from Dallas, I, th I believe, Solar. Um, yeah. Um, uh, but there was a few things that I noticed from the final. One is that it was player for player. Wherever the ball was on the field, um, when the Legends player received it, 
or won it back. Um, it was immediately something deceptive and attack-minded from every player, center backs, right backs, left backs, and then a sub would happen, and three more players would come on, and there was no change in that. It had a egalitarian feel to what every player could do with the ball at their feet. And the second thing that I noticed in that, in that final was, was, was the dichotomy between the two teams. The other team, the, the Solar team, was very athletic. Um, uh, they had a few girls up front and out wide that could fly. And they were very direct in play. And, 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 and there seemed to be, from my perspective, um, a specificity in strategy and tactics. That, hey, when we win the ball, we want to play quickly into these spaces and, and, and have these players use their speed to exploit. Whereas when the, the when match girls won the ball, I mean, the ball could go any direction, right? Like it could go, there, there was, there was not a, there was not a, a pre-designed plan of attack. It was like, Hey, when you get the ball at your feet and I, you know, I've watched these girls train, right? I've, I've watched Matt. And so like, I could see it from the TV, um, the, the connection to the way Matt coaches them, which is, Hey, when you get it, do something cool, go for it, make something happen. Um, and, 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 and the girls took that attitude and that confidence to the field. And that's what was most impressive to watch for me from from the girls perspective one of the things that i noticed uh going back to what andy was saying uh they went up three one five minutes left i believe something like that and then they gave up one goal on, on a counter because again <laughs> they were still attacking uh and then like it was already in in um extra time and they were they had a free kick in the middle of the field which the game was about to end what does any team do? Play back to the Play keeper. black, yeah. keep it, organize, you know, settle the game, you know, make the clock run. The girl gets the ball and tries to play quick and a penetrating pass forward. They lose the ball and they get attacked. They win the ball. But, like, I remember me l seeing that and I'm like, wow, they, they're not even thinking about managing the game. And I talked to Matt after the game and he's like, yeah, I was like, I was at the time I was like, oh my God, what are they doing? But I, then he realized that's what we do. It doesn't matter. They just that's the way they play. That's who they are, and that's what's what's so fun to watch. And I want to give a big shout to Matt because um, he deserves that more than any other coach that I've seen uh, in the last few years because he trains these girls four nights a week since you know, the beginning of their team. Exclusively indoor on our fields field their entire one, youth career. Field one from five to eight, it's Matt's field. His teams rotate and he that's his field. He never leaves that place Monday through Thursday. You know, Friday they play so many games, so they usually have games, so no practice. And, I mean, it definitely pays off. And you see all these girls, as you said. And it's a, a say that uh, I heard the other day, your team is as good as your worst, worst player. Every single girl that was coming off the bench, they would maintain the level and they would maintain the creativity. They would maintain the intensity. And again, they would lose the ball a lot. It's a very transitional style of soccer, but they would bust their butts to get the, the ball back. And it, that's what's fantastic. They're not afraid. A lot of teams are afraid to lose the ball because they will have to defend. So they want to keep for longer, for longer, for longer. So therefore, they don't take risks. They're not afraid of defending. That's why they're willing also to take the risk. Why they're not afraid of defending. Our curriculum focuses on 1v1s, 2v2s, and all that transition constantly. Uh, they're used to it. They're not afraid of it. And, you know, they're f really, really fit. 
and they can, can, can do it can forever. Can I expand on that a Wait, little bit? Though? I gotta, I gotta make this one point because I before we go there, you talked about in that moment, Matt, Matt, like Matt thinking like, oh, we're not managing the game, and they didn't manage the game. I think that's a recognition that what Matt has done with this group, what our club focuses on is that even in the U13 USYS national championship game, winning that game isn't even the point. The point is the long-term win. The point is the long-term opportunity and growth opportunity to continue to attack, to continue to go for it, to continue to get outside of your box, to live on that ragged edge. Even in the most important game that we've had for our club, for those girls ever. And it's still about the long-term win. And, and you not forgot to mention win. one thing. That was the first girls team from Kansas who won a national title since 2001. So and, eight and years before these girls, girls were alive was the last time a team from Kansas won a national championship. And there's only ever been two. Two. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, this, this being the second. Yeah. But one of the interesting things that a lot of people don't realize is we were only carrying one goalkeeper for that squad. That's a and, very good point. And too. going into the final, you know, going into the finals in Disney, you know, the you know the the national championship series of finals, Emily, the goalkeeper, broke her collarbone in training, right? In training, yeah, because you know our training, you know, it's tight, it's fast, it's kind of wild, and you know that's what every single goalkeeper that has come through our club, you know, that I've coached personally, has gone on and played in college because they have to make the three big saves: the diving saves, the reaction saves, and the one-on-one -on -one saves to an incredible degree compared to any other philosophy. So they become so good at the big saves. Well, um, Matt stuck little Mia in goal because of her vision, her heart. And in fact, she doesn't have legs. She doesn't have arms. She doesn't have a head. She's all heart. You know, the, uh, you know she's just absolutely 100% brave, committed. And little Mia, a field player who's tiny. Center back. She's a <laughs> tiny center back who's super yeah. feisty and works... Yeah. Forever. Oh, you know, she played like a demon all through the National Championship Series and in four games conceded only three goals in four games because of her reading of the game, you know, her guts, her heart, you know, and everything. And so Emily, who's fantastic, and she's big and she's strong and she covers all the angles, you know, and, you know, is trained to be a goalkeeper, was replaced by what anybody else would think, you know, wouldn't work. You know, but in our philosophy... It worked like a dream because, you know, even one of our smallest players, if not the smallest, you know, was so willing to step up, willing to be a leader, you know, and willing to go for it as a goalkeeper. And she, won the, and she, and she won the Golden Glove. She won the, the Golden Glove of the tournament. <laughs> yeah. So so what you're telling me, you're, what you're telling me is that if you want to win a Golden Glove at a USYS National Championship Series, you don't necessarily need to be a goalie? Well, the <laughs> apparently, I mean, she, she she won the Golden Glove and never played goal in her life. I mean, what else can I say? They scored 18 goals. They gave up only three. I mean, she probably wasn't exposed that much because the team had the ball 85% of the time. But when the time comes, you know, she's a center back. She's willing to defend. She's willing to throw her body into the ball. And she made the saves that she had to, to do. Uh, to be fair, I... Uh, uh, 
so we watched the game in ESPN three. The final was on ESPN three, um, and I don't think the announcers who are looking for storylines to talk about to engage. I don't feel like they gave nearly enough credit to the fact that the keeper for the legends is a center back and has never been a goalie and stepped up a week ago when their goalie, their one goalie on the roster, because that's what we carry as a club. And we do that because it's not fair to split. We don't think it's fair to split time for keepers. And so, uh, um, the the, (laughs) steps up and plays in goal. I don't feel like they gave enough credit, but let me tell this antidote, um, as we continue on talking about that fun game. So I turn it on, I, I sign into the app, I get, you know, turn it on. Um, and we're watching the game and Cal, we were talking about Cal, my, my youngest, walks into the room. Cal's nine. He's, he's, he's a special kid. Um, walks into the room. He goes, oh, Dad, who's playing? And I was like, oh, it's uh, the Legends. And he goes, the Legends are on TV? And I was like, yeah. Like Matt's gr- Matt, He knows Matt. He was like, I go, Matt's girls made the, the national championship, and it's on ESPN. And so he climbs up into my lap. And it's just like, just like sacked out watching the game, watches the entire game through, like literally standing up and cheering when the ball goes in the back of the net. Just the enthusiasm that he had. And, and I've seen photos of the, the kids that gathered at the facility to watch the final. It was but incredible. Just, it was such a cool thing to see 12 year olds at the highest level playing with that level of brave, creative leadership mentality. And being role models for players older than them and players younger than them throughout the entire club. Throughout, yeah, to be fair, we weren't the only Kansas team that, that won the national championship. There was two other clubs that did it as well. And I think all of Kansas got behind this group. And that was fun to see. Um, and, and I think is a testament to um, the, the confidence that those, those girls had and, and what their future could be, both on and off the field and off the field mattering probably more. And if more. there's a team in our club that follows the curriculum to the teeth, it's everything them. that we're, we're preaching to you guys that are listening to us, it's them. Literally, they work on the skills, they work on the 1v1s, they work on the 2v2s, they work on wall ball, box soccer. They do that consistently. And the player that scored the, the winning goal, the third goal, uh, it was a bouncing ball in the box in a tight space. She hits a volley, upper 90, which is what she does time and time again since she's, what, four or five years old in the boxes. So all the work that she put in in the boxes um, throughout this, all these years, we, we know the players sometimes get burned out. They... You know, they don't they think it's boring because it's repetitive. But again, repetition makes it perfect. So that moment when she scores that goal and got that joy, probably I am 100 percent sure paid off all the work she put in all those years doing that. And, you know, you only score this kind of goals, you know, time and time again, because it wasn't the first time she scored a goal like that or the other players scored goals like that. Because they do the box soccer, because they follow the curriculum, because they take advantage of our facility and all the repetition that it comes along with it. I'm, I'm going to take issue with, with something that Philippe just said for, for the first time. Does that do with Argentina? Because <laughs> he's talking about box soccer, and in the same vein, he says they think it's boring. I'm just wondering, you know, if you come from a different planet, not Brazil, <laughs> because I've never had one player that thinks box soccer is boring. Because they get in there and in, in a four-minute round of box soccer, they hit, you know, hundreds of shots. You know, they're just, you know, and it's shot after shot after shot. You don't get time to think, let alone think it's boring. Because it's so absolutely, completely dynamic. You know, Bo- boring is probably not the word that I should have used. It's more like, you know, they do it so much. It gets repetitive and they get bored because they're doing it so, not bored, but they get burnout because they do it so 
much and you know it's just I, another I'm still going to take issue I've never had anybody get burnout <laughs> you know these kids love box soccer you know and you know that, that's the point it's shooting it's it's the ankle breaker you know like the, you know the dribbling the ankle breaker you know it's the ankle breaker of all release skills is putting the ball in the back of the net is hitting the ball with power and accuracy you know and the rules make sure that you have to hit the front wall close to the to the side wall you know and you know it's like playing squash I never got bored for one minute playing squash growing up in England you know because the the game is so fast so tight and you've got to be totally on your toes to get to the ball and return it to the front wall you know in every single moment of the game so you know four minutes in a box soccer court goes by in the blink of an eye you know it feels like 30 seconds you know, but by the time that you leave the box soccer court after one round, you're wringing your shirt out, or you should be. So are you doing something different? Are you doing something wrong if your kids are getting bored in a box soccer court? It's like table tennis. You don't get bored playing table tennis. It's impossible to get bored playing table tennis. Table tennis is really fun. I've been playing it a lot lately. It's incredible fun. You know, I played a lot as a teenager, you know, and but box soccer is the most fun you can ever have with a ball. You've got competition. You know, even if you're in the court on your own, you're competing for numbers, for how many shots you can hit front, front wall, side wall, sure. you know, with accuracy and power in a limited period of time. But you know, and then you in between rounds, we take those stats. Everybody yeah. knows it's a competition. There's nothing boring about it. It is the most engrossing, you know, completely captivating part, honestly, of our whole philosophy. But, but you mentioned two things specifically on the front of that monologue, which was you don't even have time to think and it's dynamic. And like if we go back to the let me paint this goal that, that JC scored. It was JC, right? Mm-hmm. Let me paint this goal. It, 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 the ball was literally above her hip. It was above hip, hip height. And it popped out. She's tall. And she's very tall. Right? It's above hip height or near the hip. Popped out in this awkward way. She had almost no time. Had to shuffle her feet, contort her body, get sideways on to get her foot over the ball to come down. I mean, it it was. But but it had to happen like that. It It happened happened in a split second. And, and, And... Andy, growing up playing for you, we played a ton of wall ball. Wall ball being the game where there's a flat wall and it's a two-touch um, shooting game. And, and, and we, our team across the board could really strike a ball. I couldn't have scored that goal that JC scored in a million years. Even at 22, at, my, at the height of my playing career, I couldn't do it because I didn't have the repetition to quickly shuffle my feet, quickly get my foot up above the ball, go sideways on and come down through it. It wasn't your traditional volley that comes played in that's a a foot and a half off the ground that you just lift your foot up and, and travels 25 through. yards yeah no yeah. it wasn't that it, it it popped out of nowhere and she had to like i mean it was it was almost like a ninja-like move to be able to to put it on on frame and, and most people would look at that and they'd say she got lucky no and and, yeah, and we know you know it's not luck yep. because you know these kids have hit and hit you know it's uh, and, you know, people laugh when I say this, but, you know, I, I decided to total up Holly's number of shots for a year, you know, and without going into the details, I came up with a minimum of 60,000 and a maximum of 80,000, a ton of which were taken in a box soccer court, you know. So um, this is not an accident, you know, when somebody hits a ball first time and finds a corner and, and JC found the top corner. You know, and it wasn't a clean strike. It kind of rolled a little bit, you know, down her shin. But she found a way to get it back on target into the top corner in a split second under pressure, you know, at the very highest level. 
most players, in order to get it on frame, would have had to use their arm. That's where the ball was. That's the point I'm making is her ability to and, – and, and for somebody tall, it was almost maybe more difficult for her, right? Like, um, so anyways, I, I just wanted to point that out, that that, that that goal was a product entirely of box soccer, which is a really great segue. What we kind of want to – we wanted to talk about that national championship, but we want to talk about kind of like what run up to it. And so um, for those that are listening that have been longtime listeners, you might know this timeline a little bit. I'm going to race through it um, so that we can get to the heart of it. But you know, Andy started the club in 1989. Um, Andy started coaching um, well before that in England and then before that a bit in the United States. And in 1989, Andy had an epiphany, um, a growing epiphany, uh, largely uh, uh, precipitated, precipitated. I'm, English isn't my first language. Um, uh, 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 by Anton oh, yeah, Dorrance. Anton Dorrance. And the focus was very much around deceptive dribbling and goal scoring. And through the 90s, having played for Andy, we trained eh, five months of the year indoor on a small indoor f- facility, a uh, field in a facility. But then the rest of the year, we played outdoor. We played outdoor, just like most of you train your teams outdoor, um, but all built around deceptive dribbling and goal scoring, all built around as many repetitions for beating players off the dribble and putting the ball in the back of the net as we could. And, and bringing the goals 20 to 25 the, yards the goals apart. 20 to 25 yards apart. At some point, we're going to actually do an episode that really kind of digs into that for you guys that don't have access to an indoor facility, but that's not this one for sure. And then in, in, in 2008, I came back from college and teaching high school um, and started working for Andy. And at the time, we rented, I think, indoor space at like a, a Roland Park dome. It was just like a, a dome with no rebound surfaces whatsoever, um, it, sport court tile. Um, that's where we were during the winter. And Andy had always talked about wanting to get, establish the club a home in an indoor facility so that we could train in our own space. And I remember sitting in your office, Andy, and you pulling out a notebook and you're going, so we, we pay this much in rentals every year. If we just swapped this for that, we could fit into a small 4,000 square foot. 5,500. 5,500, but that included our office space. I think the backside was not, not a whole lot more than four. And regardless, a small indoor facility where you could build a small boarded field and put a squash soccer squash court is what we called it at the time in and that started in 2009 the year the girls these girls that won the national championship were born by 2014 we'd moved out of that space um, into a bigger space this space the 66,000 square foot space that also 2014 is probably Remember, uh, we took a lease in the meantime on 11,700. Yeah, because so the club one, grew as, as soon as we built it. If you built it, they came. Yeah, you know, at one point we had about 17,000 square feet between mm-hmm. two facilities, um, but we timed the leases to end concurrently, you know, and we were able to move into this facility, yep. which, you know, we've now got 66,000. We started off with a little over 40,000 square feet. In this, in this facility, we have 15, 15 fields, built three different ages, three different sizes. They're age-specific to create the right environment for every specific cohort of kids within our club. And I think it's 56 box soccer courts and a mirrored training area. And we've grown in this facility, but we started in this facility in 2014, which just so happens to be when these 2009s were five, which is when the team formed. The entire scenario for this group like it, it makes sense that we won the national championship now at youth or 13 which is the first year that this age group competes in it and it's just it's going to be the first of many and not just one by this team we have many other teams coming up behind them they're going to be competing at that level and the reason for it is because of 
you getting a bee in your bonnet in 2000, late 2008 and saying, you know, Andrew, Kyle, Pat, I think we should just do our own facility. And then a few years later, probably 2013, 2014, you saying, guys, I'm training my teams exclusively indoor. I'm not going back outdoor in the spring, summer, and early fall. I'm playing indoor only. And Matt being probably the first coach voluntarily to go, all right, I'll follow that lead. I can do that. And then now the rest of us have followed that lead. Couldn't agree more. You know, it, 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 but, you know, it, it, it goes back even further than that. This, this has been a slow burn in my whole life. You know, and what I mean by that is that when I was a kid, um, I practiced, and stay with me on this story because, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a good one. I practiced rebounding a, a soccer ball, a small soccer ball, against a wall underneath the lounge window in, 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 at 113 Dean Road, heading to Oxford, you know, England. And um, I went out there and I just pounded this ball underneath this window time and again, but I couldn't tee off it, you know, tee off on it. I couldn't hit it hard because, you know, obviously less control when you hit the ball harder. And the lounge window was made up of something like 30, you know, six by eight, you know, glass panels, you know, each of them embedded in this window frame with lots of wood struts keeping the glass panes apart. And so, you know, if I miscued and I did on a regular basis, I would break one of those small glass panes. So I had to be very controlled and just tap, tap, tap the ball underneath that window. And, you know, I broke glass panes on a regular basis. So from age seven, you know, my father showed me how to replace a window pane. You know, and so from age seven, I could literally, when I broke a pane, clean out the broken glass, take out the brads that held the glass in, take out the putty that made it waterproof. And, you know, and my dad bought a stack of these window panes, you know, and kept them in the garage. And I would go and get one of those, you know, and I, and I would fit it into the space. I would brad it back in, you know, to the wood, you know, and then I would putty over it to make it waterproof, you know, and, you know, and we were good to go, you know. And, and so that was my job whenever I broke a window. Real quick. So that's where you learned to do ball striking as a young lad on Dean Road, where did you practice your knee-high, you know, from-behind tackles? <laughs> did you do that on Dean Road as well, or was that a different location? <laughs> That's another story. We'll okay. get into that later. Okay, right. You know, but, but um, uh, you know, getting back to the, the, shoot, the hitting the ball story, I, w I was never a good shooter. You know, I, my shooting skills were very, very poor, because all I did in order not to break these windows was get over the ball, keep the ball low, using the inside, the outside surface of mostly my left foot, because nobody was telling me to use both feet, thankfully. You know? And so um, you know, I pounded the ball against this wall, you know, not pounded. You know, I controlled, you know, rebounded this ball against the wall so as I wouldn't break the glass. And I became a very, very good passer. I was a midfielder that could set my players away on goal as a youth player all through my youth years, you know, and then because I was aggressive when I started playing semi-pro soccer at age 16, they turned me into a fullback, you know, because I was fast, I was aggressive, and I could win the ball, and then I could get the pass to my teammates, my older, more experienced, probably more creative teammates, you know, and so, um, but my specific ability to strike the ball was built by the environment where I was scared to death of breaking a window, if that makes sense. 
And on the front side of the house, um, we bought two houses. We had a boarding house next door. My parents were blue collar, you know, and, you know, they saved up enough money to get two mortgages. They had two mortgages and they used the other house as a boarding house. Well, in the cutoffs between the boarding houses, I played tennis and I couldn't play soccer there because there was a drop off with a curb but I could hit ground shots in tennis from the high side to the low side and just repeat and repeat and repeat. And I ended up captaining my high school tennis team, you know, with relatively less tennis time spent than anybody else on the team, you know, because I was mostly a soccer player and I played other sports as well. But I captained my tennis team because my ground shots and pretty much only my ground shots became very um, predictable and good. You know, I could get the ball inside the court. I could get it, you know, long in the court, you know, because I was hitting the ball again and again and again at a certain spot on the wall in the cutoffs at the front of the house. And the reason that we're going into this is not, you know, to make it the Andy Barney story, but to show how specifically I couldn't shoot underneath the lounge window and how specifically I couldn't work on things like um, smashes, you know, or volleys, you know, in the front of the house, I could only work on ground shots because that cutaway was at the key distance, you know, for me to hit a volley, you know, so I couldn't get that close to the wall and hit consecutive volleys because I'd have broke my ankle on the step up, you know, that was close to the wall. But the ground shots, the ball would come back and back and I could have a rally of 100 shots if, if I could keep it going. So I became that horrible tennis player that is a revolving door ground shot baseline player, kind of like Chris Evert was, you know, you know, who was kind of my hero, you know, as a tennis player, you know, woman's tennis player back then when I was playing because, you know, purely because she was absolutely gorgeous, you know, and uh, <laughs> as a teenage boy, I used to love to watch her because of her tennis as well as, you know, you know, just the aesthetic, you know, and so, so, you know, Chris Everett was a, was a baseline player, you know, that was really hard to beat. She was quick at returning the ball, you know, but she wasn't the Martina Navratilova, you know, serve and volley type player. Does you know, do, do the box sort box soccer courts get built without the Overland Park Racquet Club? Well, no. That's you know that's that's in the 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 progression of this story is how through diff, different iterations, um, I came to really understand the value of of rebounding. So that was me as a kid, and that was my wall story as a kid that I've gone back to, and I realized helped make me able to earn money as a player. You know, and that was a huge thing. It wasn't playing in the recreation ground behind our house. You know, that maybe had a 15, 20% influence on my ability to, to get paid for playing. Um, but it was the repetitive part that enabled me to get paid for playing. You know, and so there's another story that I wanted to tell. And, and so I go back to phys ed school as a 23-year-old. And the head of department of physical education was a guy called Sid Aaron, who was a gymnast trampolinist. And he was a white hair, even. he was in his 60s, running the department of phys ed even in those days. And, and this, this guy won an award, Masters of the British Empire Award. And so this is, uh, is, is kind of interesting um, because... That sounds very British. Masters of the British well, Empire. Well, let me read out what it means. Um, the MBE is the most excellent order of, I'm gonna do this in the posh accent, Thanks. because you know, this, this is do. how these are created. It's the most excellent order of the British Empire. Uh, uh, you know, I got noted here, really big deal in Britain for his services to physical education. 
this guy frightened the crap out of every single phys ed student because he had this fire. He was hard as nails. He was built like a brick outhouse. Even even close to 70 years of age, he had muscles on his eyelids, you know, and used to crack walnuts in his spare time with his, with his eyelids. You know, and, and this is a guy that you wouldn't disagree with, you know, for love nor money. You know, and uh, I was going for an 18-mile run one night because I got into Because that's what one does. Yeah, I just, you know, I had to do it. I had to run this marathon, you know, and, and, you know, so that was my thing, and I eventually succeeded. But, you know, I was going out, and he stopped me because he lived right by the gate of the college. He had, you know, that, the custodian's house right by the gate of the college, and I'm sure he had it to police the students because that's who he was. You know, he was a disciplinarian, you know, uh, as much as he was a fantastic motivator. And, and so... I'm, I'm leaving the campus, you know, and he, and he comes outside of his house and he stops me and says, where are you going? You know, and I was like, uh, I'm going for an 18-mile run, Mr. Aaron, all proud of myself, you know, thinking I was going to get a pat on the back. And he said to me, Andy Barney, he said, are you really that stupid? You know, and I'm like, oh, well, yep. that didn't work so good. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, you just made the British college's top 11 players. You've been selected to represent British colleges you know, and so you are one of the best players in England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and you are going to spend your next two hours running the roads, training slow twitch muscle fiber, and doing nothing to develop your technical ability with the ball. You know, and he said, he said, you need to really reconsider. Why are you on this course if you can't even learn the basic aspects of specificity of training? He said, because you should be in the sports hall, you know, because the sports hall had like brick walls up to about 10 foot high. And then above that, it was a corrugated metal structure above 10 foot high. And he said, you should be in the sports hall rebounding the ball against those 10 foot brick walls. And this was long before I came to the United States. This was long before I got into, you know, building the Legends Club and the science of rebounding, you know, and I took him for his word and I would disappear down to the sports hall and I would start rebounding the ball against the wall. But this time was different because it wasn't like there was a window above the wall that I was shooting at. So I was able to tee off on that ball and hit it with accuracy and power. Well, I wasn't that accurate because I had been a fullback, you know, but hit it with power and develop the accuracy even when I was 23, 24 years of age. And so from that point onwards, if I had time to myself, I spent a lot of that time going down to the sports hall and banging that ball against that brick wall in the sports hall when they weren't playing, you know, other, other things in the sports hall, you know, and, and that changed me as a player. I became, for the first time ever, a little bit dangerous from a goal scoring perspective, which had never really been part of my lexicon, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. But yeah. then you talked about the racquetball. Well, then I know that I know that, that, that there was a match or the, like when you arrived in the Kansas City, the, the company you worked for included a gym membership or a membership to the Overland Park Racquet Club. And so you I've, I've heard this story several times. You and other British coaches would go in and instead of playing racquetball or squash, you would take a, a football or a soccer ball and you would play the first iteration of box soccer on that racquetball court, correct? Yeah, yeah. You just you just made quite clear how we're two countries divided by a common language there. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you invented you it. We perfected switching. it. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yes, you know, um, you know, and... You know, the really good mates of mine from back home I brought over, they followed me over to All-American Indoor Sports, and I went to the well. I went to people that I knew 
were really experts in the game of soccer, you know, and guys like Hugh Williams that, you know, coached for the, the NWSL team, the current, now the current, um, you know, he was one of those people, Doug McLagan, who, who coached for the Comets, you know, and uh, played professionally for the Wings and, and for the Comets, as did Hugh, you know, and a lot of these guys were expert players, you know, they had wonderful phys ed qualifications and background, um, and they had coaching licenses, FAW, Football Association of Wales, coaching licenses. So we're all there, and this was the home of British soccer camps as well, by the way. So we're all there working on um, building the indoor game. We had two big facilities in Kansas City, uh, and so we're coaching year-round in these indoor facilities, uh, doing summer camps you know, in the, in the indoor facilities, uh, winter camps, Easter camps, and then we start British Soccer, which became the biggest camp company in the world. And so this became a full-time job of administrating coaching and, you know, but we would repair to the Overland Park Athletic Club and take advantage of our free membership. But instead of playing racquetball in these courts, we made up a soccer racquetball set of rules, you know, and we would literally play for hours in these soccer racquetball courts. And once again, I felt an acceleration of my shooting skills when we started, you know, playing these soccer racquetball games. And the first time I heard the story, you started scoring goals. Yes, exactly. And then, in addition to that, in all American indoor sports, we'd built one of our small fields, which we've got, you know, a ton of them here in our facilities now, uh, on the mezzanine above the two big field area. And, you know, I started using that small field and inviting, you know, friends over to play one on one on that small field. And we'd play one on one, just two of us, you know, and I would play an hour, an hour and a half of one on one, you know, because in those days I was fit enough to do that, you know, against, you know, the buddies that I played competitive soccer with. You know, and, you know, and at that point in time, I was over 30. We actually won an over 30 national championship where, funnily enough, I did a Mia because our goalie got injured and they put me in goal uh, from the, the, the semi-final and final onwards. You know, but um, what, what happened in those racquetball courts was um, also um, uh, added to in the small field at All-American Indoor Sports. Then... I left All-American Indoor Sports in 1989, you know, in 1990. I'd spent five years with All-American. I'd been also director of coaching for the state of Kansas, and I was regional ODP director for Region 2 here and, uh, and, and worked with the National Under-19 Girls Program with Ansem Dorrance. I just decided I wanted to coach, so I started the Legends Club. And um, when I started the Legends Club, um, the first place I went to for practice time was the indoor field All-American, which is where you started mm -hmm. practicing back there in 1989 because your team was one of the first couple of teams in the club. Funnily enough, I started with an older group as well as the really youngest group with, with involving you. you know, and you know, all of those rebound areas had left me with the impression that during the winter, that's what I needed to rent was a field with rebound surfaces. And it started working like a dream even then because every spring when we returned to the outdoor game, we had taken a quantum leap comparatively to our biggest competition in our age group in Kansas City. If we were losing by three goals to them in the fall, we'd lose two goals in the spring. If we were tying games, we'd win. We always took a leap in the winters over consecutive winters until eventually we became able to win state cups and national indoor championships and, you know, and regional championships. And, and so, and I believe it wasn't because I had a magic bullet from a coaching perspective. I believe that this was mostly to do with the environment and playing tight, fast, skillful soccer and focusing on 
teaching the moves as best we knew it back in those days and making you guys more skillful. Maximizing our repetition. But more than anything, the ability to shoot the ball first and second time under pressure and score great goals. You know, and that provided the basis for the Legends Club that we have now. And, I mean, speaking of that, and, Philippe, you've probably noticed this coaching teams. I tell my teams in, in November, guys, all the other teams in town are slowing down for the next four months, and we're going to speed up, right? Like, and, and so I explained to them that, that when we come out in March into our spring season, you are going to be more fit, be able to play at a faster speed. Your technique is going to be significantly improved, whereas everybody else would have gone backward, and a gap's going to form if they're behind us, and a gap's going to narrow if they're in front of us. And so, like, my kids expect it now. They know that we're going to, we're going to come out of the winter really strong. And that's when there was a change. And, Philippe, I, you've probably noticed that before. Yeah, 100%. Like, when we winter comes, we start our let me, let me Let me jump in, and I'm going to give this right back to you. You know, you said something that I thought, was just crucial and that is that when everybody else is slowing down we are going to speed up that's brazilian favela soccer in 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 rio in the big city sao paulo you know they don't ever slow down yeah. so you know the rest of us slow down during the winter we have you know because we just don't play in tight fast spaces mm-hmm. and from everything philippe has told me and i've studied well, you tell the story. Well, there's no winter to start off. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, important. So it's and it is it, it, the the countries that succeed the most in World Cups. They are the countries they they play year round. You know, it's it warmer climates, like longer that. days. Yeah, exactly, absolutely. And, and you know, uh, again, just going back to the four v four. We as soon as the winter starts, we start our four v four leagues. We don't take practice out of the some clubs go down to one practice a week or two practice a week if they're doing three. And we don't. We maintain everything the same because we're training indoors. And we start our 4v4 league. And most clubs, they play either uh, of the five months of the winter, they play a five-game outdoor league over the course of five months, so one game per month in average. Or they play a futsal league or an indoor league that it's eight games long throughout the five months. We play at least 16 because we have winter one and winter two. They're all they're both eight uh, um, eight games each. We split our team in two, so everybody has double the playing time uh, when we split the roster in two. And sometimes these kids are fluctuating between teams in similar age groups and dual rostering and all that. I mean, every kid gets at least 20 games. In, in the course of five uh, months. And it t- shows in March. Tell our audience the story you told me about organized games versus just playing, you know, small-sided games in, in the favelas. And yeah, I mean, if you look at Brazil, like in the... What his, age? They usually start playing outdoors. Honestly, they haven't done so much research, but it's usually between 13, 12 years old. That's when they actually start playing organized soccer if the if they in outdoor outdoor soccer they besides that even if they do organize it's futsal and it's like starts at eight nine and they you know and it's not obviously as competitive it is for some clubs and stuff but the the core of what the kids do up until they're 11 12 13 
they're just playing. They are just playing on the streets. They're just playing in the favelas. They're just playing in their schools. Like, and that's what I I did growing up. I would go to school, try to rush to get there 20 minutes early. Would get uh, our socks and make a ball of socks, and there was a wall in the school that we would make that a goal, and would be like. Everybody against everybody. Like, there are no teams. Everybody against everybody. 20 kids running around and trying to get the ball and dribble all the 20 kids, which never happened, you know. But we kept trying, fighting for the ball, and boom, trying to score, trying to score, trying to score. We would do that to, for 10, 15 minutes, and the professors, everybody was trying to drag us to class, and we are trying to run away and, and do that. And then we'd have three, four classes in a row, and then we'd have our break, which was 30 minutes. Everybody would literally last five minutes of class everybody would be like jumping on chairs trying to to get out nobody paying attention to anything the professor was saying and we would just rush to the futsal court that every school has a small futsal court again it's not like here that there are lines the courts it's just are, a concrete pad yeah a concrete pad with goals and you know fences or walls or something on the side you know so it's like a cage just like our field here, but it's better because we have the turf. We just rush there, grab the ball that they had one ball, and you know, the older kids would try to bully and not let the younger kids play. And you know, the better ones they'll let us play. And sometimes we, the professors would give the fields to the younger kids and stuff like that. But we just rush there and try to play. And if you didn't get the field, you you'd go to a wall and play with our socks and stuff. That's all I did my whole life growing up after school, my my parents, whatever, would, were trying to pick me up. And I would be they would have to chase me on the futsal court because after class we would run to the futsal court again and try to play. That's what I did growing up the whole day. And then I would get home and I would be by myself with the ball, breaking stuff around the house, dribbling the chairs, dribbling everything, shooting at everything, just, you know, just playing soccer, just and playing soccer the whole time. I love hearing that. Because, and I've said this before on this podcast, I think I could say it every episode and, and it would be worthwhile, is that if we're going to follow a country from, a, from a, a, a soccer perspective, we should be following Brazil, right? Like all of us agree that, agree to that for obvious well, well, reasons. Well, well, well uh, you know, I'm sorry, but, you know. We're not following Argentina. I, I, you know, I watched and I listened to Greg Berhalter give a talk here <laughs> in Kansas City, you know, and, you know, and I asked him very pertinently, what should we be focusing on as you soccer coaches? You know, and his answer was, we should be in, you know, we, we should be doing five versus two, numbers yeah, up Rondos. with our players. And I think Brazil's got it totally wrong. I think that all this, you know, breaking ankles and being, you know, really skillful, you know, and really quick under pressure and, and shooting, you know, and being creative and imaginative and, and unpredictable. That leprosy got to you, didn't it? Yeah, I think that they have got it totally wrong in Brazil. And the way that Philippe grew up playing the game with those skills, you know, it, it should have been like Charles Hughes in England, where we put it, stick it in the mixer, <laughs> sixty-yard balls. You know, and for two decades, you know, we take England from being, you know, fairly highly regarded in world soccer as a laughing stock. <laughs> you know, so I think we should be following this numbers up. We got two and a half times the numbers. You know, and we should always have the advantage because you know we're America. Let's hope the right? other team gets four red cards, so then <laughs> it makes sense, right? But but like like like. Brazil being the gold standard, as we as as youth coaches, as as parents, as 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 facilitators, you know, whatever our role is within the youth game, how can we create an environment that more 
exemplifies the the environment you just described and like we don't do it by playing you know on giant turf fields like from a training perspective we they don't, don't exist in rio and sao paulo yeah, that's what people we don't, don't understand do it, we don't do it by playing i mean this is going to sound funny because you said futsal we don't do it by playing indoor futsal with no walls around we don't do it even with a futsal ball we do like the, the reason they do it on concrete pads is because that's what they have in the cities right like it's not a nice cush wood floor um and it's fast paced and it's and it's and it's and it's and there's fences and walls all around so the ball doesn't escape it's what we've created here in our facility so you in your role as a listener within the youth game how can you create that environment because that's the environment that will one keep kids playing Right, that, because it's fun, mm-hmm. and two, it'll 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 level up our our, our soccer IQ, key, IQ, and three, perhaps most importantly, is it'll encourage players to become brave, creative leaders for life, willing to take risks when a problem comes in front of them in a creative way to try to solve it. Right, willing to step up and lead when the chips are down not on a field off a field to make make a difference for the for the organization that they're working for that's what this whole thing this whole apparatus should be about supporting and so pay attention to what the heck you're doing and so it's about talent hotbeds right yeah and so listen to this from daniel coyle the skill guru yeah you know just massively famous uh, author uh, but that's exactly what they're doing, and here's why. Look beneath any talent hotbed, and you'll find simple, intense, player-invented games. Venice Beach skateboarders riding inside an empty swimming pool. Brazilian soccer players on the football de Soleil court. Cricketer Don Bradman learning to hit by bouncing a golf ball off of a dented water tank or baseball players trying to hit a flying yogurt lid. Naturally speaking, it's all the same story. A small, simple, concentrated, controlled game played by the kids. They play when they want. They get tons of reps. They create ladders of competition, always reaching upward. They get obsessed. They combine deep practice with the power of identity to earn myelin in excelsis. They grow super fast neural broadband. So brilliant. You could read that 10 times. That's absolutely fantastic. Brilliant. That is fantastic. And they build motivation. Neural broadband, you know, they also, um, you know, they get these incredible moments of, it's, it's like a gambler. What's the name of the chemical that gets released? Uh, dopamine. 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 You know, and so it's, it's like this massive endorphin hit when you break somebody's ankles with a move, when you score a great goal. That's why I took umbrage with your description of box soccer as boring. Because it's not. Every time you hit a great shot... I didn't a, say it was boring, Andy. I yes, didn't did. say it was you did. boring. You, I, tried, I didn't say it is boring. I, we'll think play I said that... Kids, I'm going to torment you with kids that Kids sometimes get burned out by doing something that is repetitive. And Look, they need to understand sometimes training is not always I, fun. I, kids I complain about 1v1 and that's all I wanted to say. What you did is you used the word boring. Maybe you didn't mean it that way, but I'll give you that umbrage. Now, you're always lauding it over how you're much better at soccer than us, you know, mere English people or American people. But we are much better at English than you Brazilians. (laughs) (laughs) So I get it, okay? You didn't understand what boring meant. (laughs) 
Fair play. And if any Argentinians are listening right now, they're like, Philippe's got what's coming to him. <laughs> but, but listen to this. Michelle Akers, I'd take a ball outside, and she was unbelievable at finishing. I'd take a ball outside, and I'd practice on my own in the yard. I'd use the side of the house or the garage door for the goal and boom shots off it until my legs ached. Messi's family house, which was built by Messi's father and grandfather with their own hands, is still standing. It was never sold. His mother and sister only moved out in 2010. Per Sebastian Fest and Alexandre Juliard's book, Mysterio Messi, Los Secretos del Mayor Jugador del Mundo, and I probably butchered that, his grandparents' house is around the corner and halfway up the street from his parents' old home. A woman in her 30s answers the door when I knock, but won't speak. The next-door neighbor, Lucia, is full of chat, though. When prodded about the young Messi, he was a quiet child, muy tranquilo, she says. My only problem with him was that he used to interrupt my siesta all the time kicking a football against my wall. We could do an entire okay, episode hold on, hold on. of you time reading out. Spanish. No, and when he... <laughs> Moe Tranquilo. No, hold on. He tried to say hey. football de salon, and he, I thought he said Cirque du Soleil. It took me a while, but I wasn't going to say, but now that he gave me that, that crap, I'm going to get back at him. <laughs> <laughs> Poco Espanol, okay? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is some fantastic <laughs> stuff. Hey, uh, that Daniel Coyle uh, quote is is just uh, absolutely f- um, fantastic. Andy, we've got to wrap up here, so if you've got another quote, let's do it now. But I that that uh, we need to type that one up and share it on our socials. That I want to say really one thing. I want to say one thing because I know people are going to say that Brazil hasn't won a World Cup in 20 years, and we and they have Bra- And it's it's fair. <laughs> I mean, the uh, World Cup happens only every four years, so. Yeah, but people say that Brazil is not the 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 model to be followed anymore. It, but it is because know, there's more on. Brazilians playing across the world Correct. at the highest that levels than point. any other country. Go look, go look at the Champions League and tell me what country has the most representatives. It's not an European country, and it's every single year. And if you look at the last final, there were about f- six or seven starters. Uh, in the in that final. Yep. So, so why is it then that relatively, you know, compared to all these great players from Brazil, you are so relatively unsuccessful? <laughs> well, because it happens every four years, and that's the. No, I'm talking soccer. about all these players that are playing all over the world. You know, and all you're doing is playing for the Kansas City Comets. <laughs> oh me. Oh. <laughs> Hey, and, and beaten every Argentinian he sees in a juggle competition. Hey, <laughs> something to be said for that, right? You know, <laughs> bragging rights. I, I've got to read this to All you, right, though. last one. Well, not necessarily the last one. Don't rush me. Um, so, and this is a long one, but stay with me on this one. One of the best books of 2013 will come out in its first American edition next week. Obviously, this is an old quote. When Melville House, House, when Melville House publishes *Red or Dead*, David Pierce's long, strange, and transfixing novel about Bill Shankly's career at Liverpool FC, the single most convincing fictional depiction of the endless repetition that makes for a successful sports career and a study of success in the same way that Pierce's earlier much-loved soccer novel *The Damned United* was a study of failure. 
The book is as rewarding as it is demanding and in all strongly recommended. The excerpt below comes courtesy of Melville House. Listen to this. In the second week of their preseason training, the players of Liverpool Football Club gathered in the car park at Anfield. Bill Shankly came out of the stadium. He greeted every player. He shook their hands. He patted their backs. He asked after their families. He asked after their weekends. And then Bob, Joe, Reuben, Arthur and Albert joined Bill Shankly and the players of Liverpool Football Club in the car park at Anfield. This in the 1960s, before Liverpool was famous. And they all climbed on the bus to Melwood. And when the players of Liverpool Football Club arrived at Melwood, when the players of Liverpool Football Club got off the bus at Melwood, the players of Liverpool Football Club saw the box on the training pitch at Melwood. The box ready for them. The box waiting for them. And the players groaned. And the players laughed. And the players of Liverpool Football Club ran twice around the training pitch. Then the players passed the ball back and forth in pairs, back and forth for 20 minutes to warm up. And then the players went into the box in pairs. And a ball came over the top of the box. And the first player shot against one board, first time. Then the other player hit the same ball on the rebound, first time. Ball after ball. Every second, another ball into the box. Every second for one minute. Ball after ball into the box. Then for two minutes, ball after ball into the box. Then for three minutes, ball after ball into the box. Again and again, ball after ball into the box. Every second, shot after shot. Every second, inside the box. Every player inside the box. Player after player. Pair after player. Inside the box, the players working in the box, the box working on the players. Then Reuben blew his whistle and Bill Shankly gathered the players in the middle of the training pitch. And Bill Shankly smiled. Right then, lads, enough bloody exercises. Now we're going to play some football, some five-a-sides, lads. And that was the second week of their preseason training. And the third week. And the fourth. And the fifth The players of Liverpool Football Club did not practice set pieces. They did not practice corners and they did not practice free kicks. The players of Liverpool Football Club practiced always faster, faster and faster, always forward, always forward. So you've copied Liverpool from the 60s. I copied everything (laughs) I could. And, And Bill Shankly took that team from the second division to the top of what is now the Premier Division. He was the one that orchestrated the fame of Liverpool Football Club. They were second shift to Everton when I was a kid. Liverpool Football Club wasn't the famous club when I was a little, little kid. You know, they were the young pretender versus Everton. And Shanks, the guy that said, I want a player that will fight through a wall of fire, break his leg, and still come out shooting for goal. Shanks was the one that engineered and orchestrated the Liverpool Football Club metamorphosis. And that's why he is absolutely worshipped on Merseyside mm-hmm. with anybody that's got red blood. Of course, Everton's got blue blood, so they don't worship him. But, you know, Bill Shanks was the original box soccer guy. Small boxes, Melwood, and, and all they did was small-sided games, and they did shooting drills in the boxes. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, this is not new. You know, it happens in the favelas of Brazil. It happened at the professional level and metamorphosized Liverpool Football Club. Right. And I've got to read these before we finish. Our present educational system and societal conditioning 
powerfully conform. The individual is taught from the earliest age to surrender himself or herself to the team. Nothing is more sternly rebuked than self-assertion at the expense of group achievement. No one is more praised than the good team player. No one is more reviled the individual than, than the individual who pursues his own goals. John Galbraith, advisor to former President John F. Kennedy. You know, I mean, how about that? I mean, talk about powerful. And what we're doing in our facility is we're encouraging these individuals to pursue their own goals, mm -hmm. to be that pariah. But here's the thing. Nobody's a pariah in our club because we're all pariahs. We do it all together. We all support each other. That was obvious watching the, the, the Matt's team play in that final. Bingo. Yeah. Bingo. You know, if, if anybody doesn't believe it, you know, go to the go footage. Watch go watch the footage. You can still see it, you know, on, on ESPN, you know, and watch our kids and the composure. You know, they're all pariahs. They're going to go into high school and they're going to be number 10s. All of them are going to be number 10s in high school because they're so good. It doesn't matter whether they played right fullback in the national final. Or goalkeeper. Or goalkeeper. Exactly. <laughs> you know, little Mia, you know, Emily got them there. Little Mia, you know, got, you know, the, the, you know, the, the golden gloves, you know, and, you know, it's, you know, and poor Emily. I mean, you know, she missed out on the final, the national championship series, but nobody should ever doubt that she got us there as a goalkeeper, you know, because she's she's just excellent. But Mia was fantastic, you know. You know, was willing to step up the confidence, the brave, creative leadership that Mia showed. Getting out of your comfort zone and taking the responsibility and, yeah. and doing it. Absolutely, and you know, coming to the end now. But um, listen to this, Brian Clough, and incidentally, um, not in the forest, not in the forest. But I'm going to read this first. Brian Clough and Bill Shankly. Here we have the two main architects of British football's European champion, championship success. Remember, this is the Champions League now. This is probably the big dog club competition. No offense to South America, but it's not the, drag, you know, the knockout, drag down, you know, bloody fistfight that the Champions League is. You know, it's, you know, they... What? You know, <laughs> if it's, it's blood, literally... It's literally... <laughs> it's not as quality, but it's it's the fist fight and blood. But <laughs> rocks being thrown on the field and stuff like that. But anyway. So, so listen to this. In those other days when Clough Senior was returning fiery potency to the previously dehorned Rams of Derby County, Nigel, his son, still at school, spent hours in the shooting box under the old baseball ground stand with Simon and, and that's the other son and the legendary barrel-chested Dave Mackay, Scotland's legend. Mackay helped Nigel develop the skills that made him a multi-million pound footballer with Nottingham Forest, Liverpool, Manchester City and England. His most important strength was his vision and his finishing. He read the play ahead of anyone else. He laid off glorious passes. He took incredible shots. His imagination made up for a distinct lack of pace. After years of research and the practical application of this research to prove that the unique legend shooting and deceptive dribbling approach works wonderfully well, I'm no great believer in coincidences. Here we have the two main architects of British football's European Championship success who incorporated the soccer box concept in their training. Bill Shankly with Liverpool, Brian Clough with Nottingham Forest, Derby County, 
And eventually, for a short period, Leeds United, but he didn't get a chance there. Interestingly, both took clubs from the old second division championship to the first division, EPL. And both clubs won two European championships with players from those second division winning teams. In those days of greater player loyalty, limited budgets and rarer player purchases, it was usually the club who developed their talent to the greater degree that was successful. Could it be that these coaches were better developers of players than their opponents? Could it be that the shooting box concept was the difference maker? Do you believe in coincidences? No. I don't either. I don't either. <laughs> I think when you see incredible success, if you dig into it, like Daniel Coyle has proven with multiple, multiple yeah. expert subjects and other authors as well, there's enough research been done. Djokovic grew up across the, the field from tennis courts, across the street, sorry, from tennis courts. Just down the road was an empty swimming pool. And he got into the empty swimming pool, abandoned swimming pool, and it shot after shots. So Though it didn't go out of the swimming pool in the deep end, and it came back off of the sides if he hit the corners. And that was where he got his repetition. Mm -hmm. And this happens again and again across multiple sports, is the ones that achieve, like a Tiger Woods, uh, you know, were put in situations, Earl Woods, Tiger's father, put him in situations where he took hundreds of thousands of golf shots more than his competition that he would be going up against when he played in the PGA. Mm -hmm. And until he lost his, his box toys and, you know, he went a little bit off his rocker, you know, he totally dominated the PGA, you know, and should have won more majors than anybody else. It looks as though Nicholas is going to keep his record now, but Tiger Woods, until he, he went off the road, you know, he literally he went off the road. Um, he, you know, he showed the, the value of repetition, yeah. you know, and so this is, this is obvious. And yet, here we are in the United States with huge soccer complexes, with massive amounts of space, and just by going out and training in these huge spaces, we're minimizing repetitions. We're literally sending our players out to train with leg irons and shackles. It makes no sense. We've got to be emulating the places where the great players, the great coaches, you know, took teams that were probably just average you know, and, and players that were probably no better than any other players. You know, we've got to be look where those players came from, what they did that made them great. Yeah. Whether that was at the youth level, whether that's at the pro level, we've got to emulate that stuff. Yeah. And we are the club that is the most conventional. Other clubs around Kansas City, other clubs around the country accuse us of being out there on the ragged edge of insane. We're the most conventional we're the club that does things the way they've always been done to develop individual brilliance and win the most incredible big trophies. We're the Brazil of youth soccer, yeah. you know, and I give Philippe a hard time. I love him to death, you know, and, but, you know, I'm proud to say we're the Brazil of youth soccer. That's a badge I wear proudly because we're passionate. You know, we love the game. We love the ball. You know, our kids are all encouraging of each other to be brilliant. You know, they don't get intimidated into passing these girls until they go into high school, these boys until they go into high school, you know, but then they're able to rise above it because they've been doing what we do so long. They're brave, creative leaders that when other people, senior classmen, try to intimidate them into passing the ball to them, you know, they're like, nah, I can do it myself. And then they it. beat two players and score a great goal, you know, and from that point onwards, they're in the, you know, the varsity team. You know, and they're one of the stars of the varsity team. And when they get to juniors and seniors, they are the star of the varsity team. 
Yeah, and my dad always said it's better to be the Brazil of youth soccer than the Kyrgyzstan of netball. <laughs> With that, we wrap I up. I bet Barry's turning in his grave right now. <laughs> Hearing you misquote him like that. <laughs> wrap it up. And I'm pretty sure he used to say that every time on the way to Saturday morning soccer games. Um, we wrap up episode 24. Did, did he really? Are you being serious? Oh, yeah. He was a big fan of Kyrgyzstan netball. Big, big fan. Uh, I'm not going to get the answer here. Am I? <laughs> guys, what a good episode. So much fun highlighting those girls and Matt and the awesome work that they've done. And it, it wasn't the work they did this summer. It's the work they've done since they were little kids, you know, since they were 2014, just getting started as a team in this specific facility that we sit in today. Um, I, I, I would have said this was a really fun episode if, if it wasn't for the fact that I had to stare at that Arsenal shirt the whole time. You know, <laughs> Top if you, of the league. If, if you had worn a Leeds United shirt, I would have said that hey, was the Hey, there's one right here. Hey, there you go, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. My club, you know, and, and what Jesse Marsh, the American, is oh, doing with them, the passion so he's bringing fun. to their play, that Bielsa didn't. Bielsa brought the creativity. Where is Bielsa from? Argentina. <laughs> <laughs> They're right. <laughs> but, you know, here we've got a Ted Lasso type situation. That's wonderful. The guy's bringing the passion, you know, and so leads, are, you know, are exploding. And I, I hope I don't have egg on my face and next week they don't get thrashed. You know, but, you know, and Aronson, what he did this weekend in terms of the skills, but the heart, the passion. Yeah. I mean, he's got to be right now the best American player in mm -hmm. terms of, of current form. So I'm looking forward to seeing what he does in the World Cup. You, you and I both. Yeah, so U.S. Sure. is better than Argentina. Even the U.S. is better yeah, than Argentina. Yeah, we're going to win, we're gonna win our it. group. We're coming out. you got to think about Argentina. We're going quarters at least. <laughs> All right, we're wrapping up episode 24. We will see you next time. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Thank bye -bye. you.